Thank you for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. Our current series is called Power and Weakness, a study in 2 Corinthians, where we look at how we experience Jesus' power and grace in our weakness. We hope this message encourages and challenges you, and we would love to see you at one of our services at 5.30 on Saturday evenings or 9 and 10.30 on Sunday morning. A reading from the book of 2 Corinthians. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him and are dealing with you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may have seemed to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority that the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people send their greetings. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The word of the Lord. I've never kept it from you. Never. I like Bob Dylan. He can't sing, but he can make you sing. Bob Dylan wins. July 1969, we landed on the moon. Three weeks later, we landed at Woodstock. Who has had the most cultural influence since then? 2016 Nobel laureate in literature, Bob Dylan. Hippies rule. I respect Bob Dylan. He's transparent. He does not know what to do with Jesus. In 1979, Bob Dylan made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. He began attending a church in California that would be very much like Waterstone. In 1984, he was interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine and he made a statement that got him in a lot of trouble. It rocked the rock and roll world. He said, and I quote, I believe in the book of Revelation, end of quote. Since then, Bob Dylan's been all over the place. 
Most recently, dabbling in ancient, mystic Jewish practices. But yet, he made waves again just a few months ago when on the front page of his website, bobdylan.com, he posted the lyrics to that song you just heard, Property of Jesus. Bob Dylan's wrestling with a question that I believe Jesus brought you here today to wrestle with. What will you do with Jesus? Now, Charlotte read for us the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. It's our 13th message on 2 Corinthians. Bless you for sitting through all of the messages in 2 Corinthians. Those that endure to the end will be saved. (laughs) I'm sure you've picked this up, that as we've gone through this great letter, the most personal of Paul's letters, I'm convinced, you've picked up that outside of chapters 8 and 9, which Danielle preached on generosity, every other chapter in this book has been the same theme. Corinth doesn't like Paul. Paul is defending his apostleship. And as you heard today in our reading, Paul's saying, I'm going to come for the third visit. You better get your button gear and clean up your act. That's the big idea today. Get your button gear, clean up your act. What I want to do today, since most of 2 Corinthians 13 has already been preached, I want to step out of the text And I actually want us to go back and capture the three stories that have converged in the book of 2 Corinthians. I want us to walk out of here feeling once again that you have some sense of what this book's about. And ultimately what this book is about, as we come to verse 5 in chapter 13, is examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So let's talk about these stories that converge and make this book happen. First, there's the story of Paul. Then we're going to talk about the story of Paul bringing the story of Jesus. And then at the end, we're going to talk about we have to respond to the story of Jesus. The story of Paul, the story of Jesus, the story of Waterstone as we respond to Jesus. Sound like a plan? Hippies rule. Let's start with Paul, the big story. I mean, let's start at the very beginning. The very beginning. God made the world and everything in it, including you and I. We said, it's good, but you're not, and you're not good enough, and we pushed him away, and we went our own way, and we became lost. So even as God was escorting our parents out of the garden, he made a promise that from the seed of Eve, would come one who would be the rescuer and who would save the world and who would crush the head of the serpent. That, thousands of years later, we now know to be Jesus Christ. Jesus came to live the life we should have lived. And when we receive him, we get that life. So that God looks at us and he can say, I declare that you're righteous. Why? Not because of anything you've done, but because of everything he's done. And that's gifted to you. Merry Christmas. He not only lived the life we should have lived and gives that to us, he died the death we should have died and gives that 
to us. And because he died for our sins in our place, we can be forgiven and have nothing between God and us. Merry Christmas! Three days later, Jesus walked out of his own grave, the only man in the history of the world to do this. And because he walked out of his grave, those who follow him, made like him, like him we rise. And we will walk out of our own graves with a new resurrection body outfitted for heaven. And then after Jesus' resurrection, 40 days later, he literally, the text says, was hoisted back to heaven. And as he was hoisted back to heaven, he said, I'm going to send my spirit and my spirit will make you witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. And you will carry on my love and my mission in this age until I come. And by the way, next week we, we start to talk about Advent. And Advent is the season where, again, we start talking about the end of the world. Just as the ancients were waiting for the first coming, we are waiting for the second coming. And that's what Advent, the beginning of the church year, is all about. Waiting for Jesus to come again. And we'll start our new year next year talking about the second coming, when Jesus will come to make all things new. Three years after Jesus was hoisted back to heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of the Father, bending every moment, mortaring every minute to his plan, well, three years later, that plan was for him to make another personal and visible revelation to a man named Saul. Now, Saul was well-known in the Jewish community. He had been personally overseeing the violent arrests around Christian communities in Jerusalem and even through some of the other surrounding nations. Paul, his name was Saul then, the Hebrew name, was uh, holding the cloaks while people would throw stones that Christians, Jewish Christians, who'd had the guts to come out and say, Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is God, and they were killed for it. And Saul was overseeing all these events. He was on the way to Damascus to get letters to chase down more Jewish Christians when Jesus appeared in unveiled glory. And Paul was blinded. In fact, for the next days, he could not see anything except the unveiled Jesus. He was led by the hand, Acts chapter 9 tells us, by his uh, travel team to Damascus. And in Damascus, God had prepared another man by the name of Ananias, a Jewish Christian living there, to go and see Paul. And at first, Ananias says, Lord, are you kidding me? We all know who this guy is and what he's done. But the Lord said to Ananias, I've prepared this man to be my representative to the Gentile world. Saul is so captured by the love of Jesus and the mission of Jesus and the glory of Jesus that he actually then changes his name from Saul, a Hebrew name, to Paul, a Gentile name, in order to reach the nations. And it's this Paul that in 50 AD walks into the city of Corinth, the Las Vegas of the ancient world, And over an 18-month period, he and his team plant a church. That's the story of Paul and Corinth. I want us to just linger on that for a moment 
and squeeze some meaning out of it for our own life. What's going on here? This. The way the kingdom of God moves throughout the world until Jesus comes back is through God putting the right person in the right place at the right time. Right person, right place, right time. Paul, he was educated as a Jew and actually was a Jewish Pharisee, which was the highest level a Jewish layperson could achieve. Paul, no doubt, had the entire Old Testament memorized. Start with that. He was not trained, however, in Jerusalem. He was trained in a place called Tarsus, which was an Ivy League school in the ancient world. And they specialized in Judaism and in Jewish training, but they also, in Tarsus, were very engaged with teaching Jews how to engage their surrounding culture. Which is why in Acts 17, when Paul is standing on top of a hill near the Acropolis in ancient uh, Athens, he's able to quote to a Greek audience a Greco-Roman poet from the top of his head. He was so equipped in Judaism, and everyone in Judaism knew him, but he was also equipped to engage the Gentile world. He was the right person in the right time. Understand Rome at this time. Rome had 250,000 miles of road, which connected uh, West Europe over to Asia and down around the south end of the Mediterranean to North Africa. They all had roads, safe roads, patrolled by the Roman military, hospitable roads with hostile, hostels every couple of miles. It was never in the history of the world at that point was there a better road system in the world. And Rome was well known for its postal system, again, because of the safe roads. Do you understand, right, that most of the letters Paul wrote, he was in jail. Christianity is a jailhouse religion. And the reason these letters could get all over the world is because of the postal system of Rome. And one more thing in Rome. In Rome, the trade language, the common language, was Greek. It's estimated that 90% of that landmass, Europe, Asia, and North Africa, spoke Greek. Now, they all spoke their own in national languages, but everyone could speak the common Greek. So 90% of the world could understand what Paul was writing when he wrote in Greek. It was a phenomenal, amazing time. It's the right person at the right time in the right place. God's always doing this, always. I've never kept it from you, never. One of my favorite books has got two of my favorite things, The Search for God and Guinness. Any of you read it? I highly recommend it. It's the story of Arthur Guinness. Arthur Guinness came to know Jesus Christ as he sat under the preaching of John Wesley, the great Methodist evangelist. And he heard Wesley preach the Christian view of money, which Wesley was right on. The Christian view of money, make as much as you can, save as much as you can, in order to give away as much as you can. That captured Arthur Guinness. And Arthur Guinness, as you can imagine, made a lot of money with his brew pub. But that money was used in the 1700s in Ireland to start children's Sunday schools across the nation. And thousands upon thousands of young children came to know Jesus Christ because Arthur Guinness was making his beer money. 
Not only that, in Ireland in the 1700s, from Guinness Money, the first hospital movement, modern-day hospital movement, started in Ireland. So you see, the gospel was proclaimed from Guinness Beer Money, and the gospel was demonstrated from Guinness Beer Money. The right person, in the right place, at the right time. It happens on a macro level like that. It happens on a micro level like you and like me. We've been encouraging you and encouraging you to have a holiday party this holiday season. People are so open to being uh, invited to your home or to some place to have a holiday celebration. In fact, uh, we, we uh, are getting reports back uh, for Halloween, we encourage you to make sure you're home, have the lights on, and give out the largest candy bars on the street so people remember you. And we actually had some of you, and you sent us the pictures, you actually grilled hot dogs in your driveway and had amazing conversations with parents who were freezing to death <laughs> with your kids. Well done. It's that. You think they'll remember that? Well, they'll be back next year. Maybe expand the menu. This past week, we got a letter from one of you. Uh, wrote to uh, Madison, who's, who's our neighboring director. Said, Madison, I used the cards you provided and supplemented with some cute invites made by my kiddos. I went door to door introducing myself and inviting them over for coffee and pie. It was funny to see everyone soften as they realized I wasn't trying to sell them something. I have a couple of funny stories. One of the neighbors, after I rung the doorbell, yelled, I'm not answering. <laughs> and to that I replied, okay, I'll just leave your invitation to come over for a piece of pie and coffee here in your, and before I could finish, the door flew open, and he stood there with a big smile on his face, ready to receive the invitation. <laughs> Boom. Another example is of one of my neighbors, I found out, recently lost his wife and finds himself a single father to two teens. We shared some stories of his kids and some common experiences we share, and he asked if I would help his daughter break into the babysitting world. Perhaps the Lord will give me an opportunity to speak into her life in the absence of her own mother. Madison, I feel so energized and alive in Christ. The Holy Spirit was with me today, no doubt, I can see little micro stories in how connection with neighbor might help or heal several of the people that I've come to know this evening. Have you planned your holiday party yet? Really, we're praying for 200 parties from Waterstone. Imagine what can happen with 200 parties going to put you on the spot. How many of you have planned your holiday party? Get your act together and get your butt in gear. <laughs> Seriously, what's the problem? We have a holiday guide, gives you everything you need to know about how to do it. Do it. I still love you. But this is serious business, folks. Jesus is coming back. People are dying. 
That's the story of Paul. The right person in the right place at the right time. Paul is coming to Corinth to bring the Jesus story. The Jesus story is this, Christ crucified. You know, we've talked about almost every week that Corinth was having issues with Paul. They, uh, in the Las Vegas of the ancient world, they felt like their pastor should be charismatic and eloquent and, and, uh, you know, someone that's esteemed in their culture. But every time Paul came, he talked about being beaten and being imprisoned and being shipwrecked. And they were having trouble lining up. You know, Paul says, I'm going to boast in my weakness. And Corinth said, well, we'd like you to be a better preacher. And they were having trouble getting on the same page. But Paul keeps pushing, as we've pushed over these last 13 weeks relentlessly, that Paul boasts in his weakness. Christ crucified is the heart of the gospel. Christ crucified. It was there in the very first message preached in the history of the church in Acts chapter 2 when Peter stood up and said, this Jesus whom you've crucified is now Lord and Christ. Christ crucified is the heart of the gospel, and Paul won't move off it. And he says that it's power in weakness. That's the arc of history and the shape of the world. And the definition of reality is that God takes over the world through weakness, through voluntary love, through laying down his life, Christ crucified. Now, why is that the heart and center of the gospel? Simply this, that in the cross, God demonstrates his forgiving heart. Love rules. We see it. You and I know that whenever there's an offense that comes between us and another person, whenever there's a grievance, whenever there's an issue that gets in the middle, someone has to make a move towards that offense and absorb the cost and make it right. Forgiveness requires that somebody pays. <laughs> I've told you this story before, but it's such a good story, and I get another chance to brag on my youngest son. You might remember that in 2018, he bought a new, brand new, saved his money, drove it off the lot, Subaru Forester. 12 hours later, we get a call waking us up before 5 o'clock in the morning. Mommy, he says, my car's on fire. Sure enough, an arsonist had broke into Luke's car, threw in accelerant, and the four cars around him, and he lives down near Wash Park. And there's his brand new Subaru, 12 hours old. Luke handled it with a plum, handled it actually much better than his mom and dad did. And we worked out this thing. We learned a lot about insurance, that as soon as you sign on the dotted line, the insurance kicks in and covers your car. And our insurance company, you know, I won't lift it up any, above any others, but actually gave us, Luke, more than the car was worth. <laughs> it was... Um, It was a good deal. We all got over it fairly quickly, except for one person, my mom. Called my mom. Now, I know I'll get an amen out of this. I've been hard on you this morning, but this you will say amen. Never get between a grandmother and her grandchild. <laughs> Never. For weeks after I call, I call my mom about every week. Mom. How you doing? Did they catch that guy yet? Mom, it's Arthur. Ar they, the, the detective told us they hardly ever solve arson crimes. They'll never catch this guy. Well, somebody's got to pay 
for weeks after. Did they catch this guy yet? Forgiveness means that somebody pays. And when it comes to our sins, our sins, and by the way, our sins, right? It's a word that we've heard so often that sometimes it just doesn't have the weight it should have on a sin. But think about it, sin. Would you say that it's a good day for you if you sin three times a day? Thought, word, deed. I'd say it's a pretty good day if I, if I last a half hour with that. But let's just say three sins a day. Good day for you. 365 days a year, you live to be 70 years old. 70,000 sins. What's God going to do with those? Look away. Let's pretend it didn't happen. Ignore them. What kind of a righteous, just God would that be? Rather, do you know what God does? He decides to make his son enfleshed so that he could be killed and send that son to the cross so that at the cross, Jesus Christ could become the giant towel that soaks up our liquid depravity, spilling out of us all the time, and wash us clean. Jesus absorbs the cost so that we can be free and have relationship with God. The cross is at the center of Christianity. Paul says again in every chapter of 2 Corinthians, I won't move from that. There's power in weakness. The cross is the center. I will preach Christ crucified. Do you know how to tell if the cross is the center of your life? Two words. You're offended. You understand that it was Jesus in love dying, not just, listen, not just for you, but because of you. Your sin nailed him to the cross. Now I hesitate in this next illustration talking about a person who's been disgraced. But you write me remember the filmmaker and actor Mel Gibson. He's made a mess of his life, but his theology is right in one place. When he made the movie The Passion of the Christ, he wanted to be sure that everyone knew who saw the movie that it was his left hand that held the nails that put Jesus on the cross. Mel Gibson's theology is right there. It was Mel Gibson who put Jesus on the cross. It was Larry Renault who put Jesus on the cross. Have you been offended by the cross? To the degree that you've been offended, to the degree that you've been broken, to the degree that you understand that you put Jesus on the cross is the degree that actually you're willing to own the next word, not only offended, but then the cross becomes your obsession. To the degree that you've been broken is the degree that the cross has obsessed you. What is the obsession about? Simply this, you've begun to realize that it's the cross, power and weakness, that can actually render a human heart open to understand how much God loves them and respond to that love. You see, the story of Paul is the right person in the right place at the right time. The story of Jesus is the right message in the right place at the right time. 
Do you know why I'm convinced Waterstone is a church in decline? As well as the American church? Do you know why these empty seats are here week in, week out? Is because we don't really believe the power of the message as much as we should. We don't really believe that if we raise Jesus in a conversation, that if we say Jesus is king, but this king laid down his life to forgive the sins, to disarm the power, to destroy all evil without destroying us. We don't really believe in that power like we should. And so we're quiet and we're silent and we don't lift Jesus and we don't move towards our neighbors and we have empty seats and we're a church in decline. We have lost the sense of power in this message, because it's not our power, it's the Holy Spirit's power that powers this message when we mention Jesus in a conversation. I was reminded of this recently in a book called Why Church, written by the president of Gordon-Conwell Seminary, Scott Sundquist. He tells this story in the book. My wife and I once visited a large new church in Los Angeles. After some time of praise, Mary, a local drama student, at a um, large university came forward to give a testimony. The professor of her introductory acting class had asked all the students to present something extreme to to the class. Mary decided that, as a Christian, she would write a hymn of love to Jesus and sing it. Huge risk. The student presenting before Mary, her name was Alice. Alice took a Bible, led the class out by a trash can on campus, and proceeded to slowly read portions of the Old Testament uh, about commands to make war, God punishing the nations, and sending Israel into exile. She read imprecatory psalms, and with each violent passage, Mary would say something like, who would ever believe in a God like that? And then she would tear out that page of the Bible, burn it, and dump it in a trash can. Extreme drama. This was the warm-up for Mary. Mary pulled out her guitar, said a brief prayer under her breath, and sang a love song to Jesus. The class was silent and then went home. All, that is, except for Alice, who came forward with tears in her eyes. That was beautiful. That is the God I want to know. Can you help me get to know Jesus? And so after a few days of Bible study and prayer, Alice gave her life to Christ. The congregation was filled with praise and joy. And then to add even greater praise and thanksgiving, Mary said to the congregation, and Alice wanted to come worship with me today to express her thanksgiving to Jesus. And the place erupted in praise and worship when Alice walked on the stage and hugged Mary. Some of us broke into songs of praise. Some of us cried tears of joy. Have we lost the sense of how powerful the loving message of Christ crucified is? The story of Paul brings the story of Jesus, brings the story of Corinth and Waterstone where in verse five, we're brought to a decision point. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Now, there's two points I wanna make about this verse. First, 
Isn't it interesting that Paul is now turning the table? He's saying, all this time, you've been evaluating me as your pastor. Now the time is to evaluate you, yourselves. And the evaluation is to see whether you are in the faith. The second, I think, interesting point before we talk about that faith is this. So often we hear this voice and we think individual, but this is not individual. This is a corporate plural language. This is Paul asking Corinth to evaluate themselves as a church. This is Paul asking Waterstone to evaluate ourselves as a church. So Waterstone Community Church, examine ourselves. Are we in the faith? What does that mean? It means two things. One, do we believe in the historic essential doctrine of the gospel. That is, do we believe that Jesus is fully human? He became human so that he could be killed in order to lay his life down on a cross for our salvation, to disarm the powers and to destroy all evil. Do we believe that Jesus, while fully human, is fully God? And being fully God, just one drop of his blood is of infinite worth to save the sins of the world? Do we believe that Jesus was fully human, fully divine, laid down his life for our salvation? Waterstone, are you in the faith? Is that what we believe? The second part of that is not only the historical doctrine piece of who Jesus is and what he's done, but then it's the lifestyle piece that goes with a transformed heart, that once that doctrine has gotten inside of you and changed your heart and broken your heart, you live differently. Your views and opinions about money change. Your views and opinions about sex change. Your views and opinions about marriage and family and friendship and work. You are a changed person. You are what Paul calls a new creation. And a new creation is willing to submit their own personal views, their own personal opinions to the opinions of the apostles' doctrine. Not the opinions, the truths of the apostles' doctrine. So Waterstone Community Church, what does it mean to examine yourselves as to whether we're in the faith? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done? And do you live like you believe it? Are you in the faith? Let me bring this to a rather dramatic ending. Jesus was asked what time, what it means to follow him. He put it on the table. He said, if anyone wants to follow me, this is Luke 14, 26, if anyone wants to follow me, he or she must hate her father and mother, his wife and children, her brother and sister. (laughs) The commentators say, well, this is one of those hard sayings of Jesus. You think? (laughs) If anyone wants to follow me, they must hate their mother and father, their brother and sister, their wife and children. What does that mean? You need to understand clearly two words. 
First, anyone. If anyone wants to follow me. You need to understand that Jesus is not saying there, well, most of you can be moderate. Work Jesus in on the side when you have time, when it's convenient, work him in. And oh, I do need a few good men and a few good women who will lay everything down. No, absolutely not. If anyone wants to have anything to do with following Jesus, they need to hate their mother and their father, their wife and their children, their brother and their sister. Everyone. Well, what does it mean to hate? <laughs> it does not mean to actively hate. Jesus has been very clear that the mark of a disciple is love. The mark of a Christian is love. And that we have to even love our enemies. So he's not talking here about actively hating someone. He's talking about a comparative hate. That the way you love Jesus and make him the essential relationship of your life with intensity, with passion, with talking about him, with all that you have, the way that you love Jesus makes every other relationship look like hate by comparison. The Waterstone Community Church, examine yourselves. Is Jesus Christ the essential relationship of your life? What will you do with Jesus? I just want us to sit in some quiet, some silence on that, and then we'll finish with a prayer. What will you do with Jesus? Let's pray aloud together. Jesus, this is our prayer. I hear thunder in your speech, O God. I see lightning in your acts. Storm through this soul of mine. Wake the sleeping parts of me. Raise the dead parts of me. Stand me on my feet, alert and praising in your presence. Amen.